And I'll take this time. I know parents are still making their way down, but uh, I want to introduce Dennis. Some of you guys recognize him from a decade ago, decade and a half ago, what is it? Three decades? How old are He uh, he was he is my brother-in-law, still is, not was my brother-in-law. Um, but he a long time ago was part of our college group in Texaco and uh, served as a college minister for a little while at Texaco. And when he graduated, he enlisted our is that the right word enlisted in the army? Sort of. I can Okay, I'll let him give his biography because uh, it's way more colorful and inflated. And <laughs> Thanks for being here, guys. Good morning. Good morning. As Seth said, I do recognize a number of you. Uh, there are some faces that I do not know. Um, and so, with that, I can give you a little bit of my background and how awesome it is to be back here in southeastern New Mexico after being gone for 16 years going on. Um, as Seth said, I was the director of college ministries at First Baptist Texco while Katie, my lovely wife, Seth's sister, were in college down at Eastern. And 9-11 uh, changed our lives. We thought we were gonna go be missionaries in Russia or some third world country in North Africa and that event changed our lives forever. And it, Katie's grandfather enlisted in the army on December 8th, 1941. Now I wish I could say that it was that dramatic for me, but it was not, I would be embellishing the truth. Uh, however, shortly after that, I did receive a, a commission in the army to be an infantry officer. And uh, what the Lord used was a very specific passage to show me that that was the way. And at the time, I thought it was all about fighting terrorists and defending freedom. And, and over the last about five years or so, uh, well, yeah, six now, I guess, I came home from Afghanistan at the end of 2011, and my family was pretty much a disaster. Uh, my wife was doing everything she could to, to hold everybody together. I had been in and out, you know, five years out of eight, gone, and had really put my heart and life into staying alive and keeping others alive and neglected my family and so God used this same verse to show me that I needed to be focusing on them and really pouring myself into my relationship with him my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my children and then recently God has used this passage again uh, to bring me out of the army uh, and then I've served with a Christian ministry in Colorado Springs for about a year. And in that situation that did not really go so well, uh, God began to use this verse to talk, just to show me about what he's designed his church to be. And not in a theoretical way, but in a very practical way. And he's used my experiences as an infantry officer and the experiences with my family to bring this about. And so what I share with you this morning is that passage. So this has been a 16 years in the making, uh, this, this message. And so hopefully I can get this knocked out in about 45 minutes to an hour. If not, I know you guys have been going through the book of Acts and you should have already gone through Tychicus, right? When Paul was teaching, he falls asleep out the window. So if that happens, 
hopefully Seth will be able to raise one of you uh, back from the dead. But with, uh, with that said, thank you, Seth, for the opportunity to come and to share this message. Uh, and just to, to be with you again today and, and to share with you what the Lord has done in us, what he's shown us over the years, and then to encourage you. Uh, and so with that, before we really dig in, let's, let's pray and just ask God to, to speak through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you just humbled by your goodness and your mercy. And Lord, your love and that while we were yet sinners, that you sent your son to die on our behalf. And that apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. And so as we go through these passages this morning... And we focus on the great call to live for others. God, I just ask that you would speak through me. Uh, that you would use me as a, a servant of your word. Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts and lives of, of each person here. That you would meet them where they are, Lord. And just as Peter, that you would empower them to serve you mightily. God, I pray uh, that the words that I speak are your words. They would be an encouragement to the people here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come and die. It's a little bit dreary, yes? Uh, and some of you might be thinking to yourselves, really, come and die? This guest speaker is going to come and talk to us about death. And I, I know that it seems a little bit morbid, but I, I really pray that you'll bear with me for a little bit this morning. And... I think by the end of our time together that you'll, you'll find the call, come and die, is actually quite encouraging. Think back, if you will, to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34 through 37, when Jesus summons the crowd uh, with, along with his disciples to himself, and he says to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for that? You know, the Lord had a very unique and challenging way of, of getting after our thinking especially when we least expect it, right? In the first half of Mark chapter 8, Jesus had just fed the 4,000. He had warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, and he heals a blind man by spitting into the man's eyes. Yet in the verses immediately preceding this passage that we just read, the Lord asked the disciples a series of questions. And he says, who do people say that I am? To which the disciples replied, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others still one of the prophets. To which Jesus offers a follow-up question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. The Lord then instructs them not to tell anyone. And he lays out for them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And that he'd be killed, and after three days that he would rise again. And as he was stating that matter very plainly, Peter looked at him, took him aside, and began to rebuke him. Now this is immediately following 
acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. And turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And Peter needed to be reminded by the Lord in that moment that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are God's ways our ways. And so this morning, as we, we go through this passage in Nehemiah, I want you to start there, that our ways are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And think about what the Apostle Peter writes in Galatians 3.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ physically died for us. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Yet it's different. Just a little bit different than how he did it. Not just in the fact that he died for our sins, but the fact that we may not be called to physically die. The same apostle, Paul, writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So when Christ calls us, come and die. It's to be a living sacrifice. Right? There may be some in this room who, will, who are called at some point to physically lay down their life for the Lord. But the vast majority of us will never be in that position. So what does it look like for us to come and die, to be a living sacrifice? And as I, I have studied this, but also have really lived out the passage we're going to go through this morning, I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a, a German pastor and theologian and a, an anti-Nazi dissident. And if you recall, his writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential, and especially his book, The Cost of Discipleship. But apart from these theological writings, Bonhoeffer was known for his staunch resistance to Nazi dictatorship in the 1930s, including his vocal opposition to Hitler's euthanasia program, and, as well as his genocidal persecution of the Jews. After being accused of an association with the plot to assassinate Hitler, he was quickly tried, and along with others, uh, other accused plotters, including former members of the German military intelligence office, he was arrested in April of 1943 by the Gestapo and was imprisoned for a year and a half at Tegel Prison. He was eventually transferred to a Nazi concentration camp and then executed by hanging on April 9th, 1945, just weeks before the final collapse of the Nazi regime. But it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments to this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it may be death, like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Yet this call to death in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is, is a call to live as Christ lives. For the benefit of others. To the glory of God. And with that, let's look at our text this morning and... and Unpack a few practical ways that we can do just this, that we can die to live for the benefit of those around us. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, we'll read through uh, verse 14 of Nehemiah. So again, that's Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, but we're going to focus our time this morning in Nehemiah 4.14, but to set the context I think it's important to read the, the first half of the, uh, the chapter. And Nehemiah writes, Now when Sanballat had heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, Nehemiah writes, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to the work. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And then in verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And with that setting is, is there, that Nehemiah has been called by God to go and rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. And if you recall from you know, previous studies of, of the Old Testament, Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. 
Ezra was a priest and a scribe and was called out of captivity to rebuild the temple. And they were doing that. The construction was well underway. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And he's, he's looking and hearing the reports about Jerusalem and how the city is under attack and the walls are torn down. And it's just, it's really, the situation is bleak. Mind you, Israel is still in captivity. And one day he goes before the king and his face is sullen and the king asks him, Nehemiah, why the sad face, right? This is essentially what he says. And it's interesting because Nehemiah in chapter 2 becomes fearful. And is, while he knows how he wants to respond because he's with the king, he, he knows that he has to be careful in how he responds. And so he prays. And... He tells the king how his heart is burdened for the city of Jerusalem and his people. Not only does the king respond positively, he gives him all the materials he needs. He gives him a written decree that gives him permission so that when things like this happen, he can continue the work. That's at the beginning of the book. Here, what we see is a return to that, except not for Nehemiah, but for the people he's leading. And it says... In the New American Standard, it, it starts a little bit differently, this passage. And so let's, let's I'll, I'll read that to you this morning, and then we'll, we'll really dig into uh, this, this, this verse. Again, this is from the New American Standard. Nehemiah says, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When I saw their fear. In this setting, their adversary is fierce. And that's our first point this morning. As we, as we go through this. first point this morning, our adversary is fierce, but there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. Fear is defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or threat. Most often we fear situations that are far from life or death, and thus we hang back for no good reason. Nehemiah, having been through this just weeks before, understood. And so I ask you, are you paralyzed by the fear of letting go of your life this morning? Maybe fear doesn't paralyze you, but rather you find yourself like King Saul, who in 1 Samuel chapter 13 was activated and energized by fear. And for you, keeping busy because you know that when you fail to act, fear overcomes you. I encourage you that Nehemiah was a man of intense and proven faith. He understood what it was like to be overcome with fear. He, he wrote this book and he specifically writes of the fear he felt in the presence of the king in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 2. So he could sympathize with the fears of the people that he was leading in rebuilding the wall. And he can sympathize with each of us here this morning. And when he saw the people, he led the people. When he saw their fear, he stood up 
and led. But what did he do? Shared his faith, publicly urging the people not to be afraid. He was there with them in the moment, equipping them, encouraging them, leading them to go further with the Lord than they thought they were capable of going. What's most interesting about his response is he doesn't just tell them, don't be afraid for the sake of not being afraid. We have an incredible job to do. Stay focused on that. No, what does he say to them? What does he say? Remember the Lord. But even in that, he he takes it a little bit further. Because Nehemiah also believed that fear is conquered by reflecting on the sufficiency of God. Remember the Lord. Isn't it shocking that in the midst of such incredible conflict and crisis that, that we would need and they would need to be encouraged to remember the Lord? One commentator wrote, Their circumstances had changed, the work was more difficult, and the enemy was more active. But the Lord was exactly the same. When trouble comes, Scripture's great realities can be temporarily displaced by anxious thoughts. And so we as believers often need that timely reminder. Remember the Lord. But we're not just to casually think about God and in remembrance of his existence cast off fear. It's much more personal than that. Nehemiah encourages us to focus on two very specific attributes of the living God. And the first attribute we're to remember is God's greatness. God's greatness. And the second attribute that Nehemiah tells us in verse 14 that we're to remember when we're afraid is God's awesomeness. Now think about this in Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. David writes, There is no one like you among the gods. O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you. And, O Lord, they shall magnify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. John Piper says of this passage that God's greatness makes him stronger than all the gods of the universe. And God's greatness makes him stronger than all the nations of the world. He rules the gods and he rules the nations. For he is great and does wondrous things. He alone is God, God over all gods, and God over all nations. Remember the Lord. It is in the power of God's Spirit that we overcome fear, we overcome doubt, we overcome worry. It is by the power of God's Spirit that we serve. And it's the testimony of God working in our lives that helps us to stand when we need to. Nehemiah had just been through fearful experience before the king. And he drew on that experience when God put him in charge of the people and the work to rebuild the walls. You know, it's, it's moments of, of physical, mental, and, and spiritual anguish that offer an incredible temptation for us to doubt the Lord's goodness and fear that he doesn't care about our situation. Consider the nation of Israel after God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. It wasn't disbelief in God's existence that got them into trouble when they were in the wilderness. 
but rather what fueled God's anger and wrought his judgment when they doubted his goodness and grumbled against him in fear. I'll say that again. What fueled God's anger and wrought his judgment was when they doubted his goodness and grumbled against him in fear. Do we not have the same propensity? I know I do. I know I do. Yet it is fellowship with Christ and his church that in those we learn to think rightly about the situations before us and apply biblical truth. Over the course of our lives, tests teach us dependence upon Christ. And in the end, God reveals that through our minds, that though our minds break and our hearts begin to fail, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And though our adversary is fierce, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. But Nehemiah continues, and he, after he tells them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, he gives them a command to fight. To fight. The Christian life is a battle for hearts and minds. It's a battle for our heart and mind. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of the people around us, wherever and whenever we are. You know, I'm reminded of, of my time first coming into the Army. And like I said, God used this voice. I was praying in a hotel room about what to do and how to, how to follow and, and what I believed the Lord was asking me to do, which was to, to join the Army and, and go fight for our country. And I just, I remember thinking about the numerous times I'd heard in sermons, you know, as, as a young Christian, go to the Word, Dennis. And I just, I, that's what I prayed, and I asked God, and he gave me this passage, and so I went to fight. But you don't just show up as a soldier. You might think you do, and I thought I did. But I wasn't a soldier, not yet. Having just become a dad, I left my wife and my 13-day-old son, who's will be 15 later this, this month, uh, to attend basic combat training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And in September of 2003, we were a nation at war. And over the next 10 weeks, through rigorous teaching and training, the drill sergeants at Fort Benning would transform me and the, other, the 200 other civilians into soldiers. And as I sat in the classroom that first day at Fort Benning, my, my head ached. My heart throbbed as I was listening to briefings on procedures in the barracks, procedures in classrooms, on rifle ranges, tactics, and, and so many more, more topics. The drill sergeants taught us how to stand, how to march, how to communicate. Staff officers gave us updates on operations and casualty reports in Afghanistan and Iraq. Questions at that moment were racing through my mind. Can I really function on so little sleep? Now, mind you, this is day one, and I already felt like my mind and my heart were overwhelmed. Can I really function? Will my body break, or will my mind break before my body? Am I ready to die for my country, for my fellow soldiers, for my young family? That day in the classroom, it was difficult to concentrate, and then the company commander entered the room for the first time. And I was sitting there with a, a fellow officer candidate, and this man walks in the room, and he was an imposing six foot three inch armor officer. 
Uh, and at the time, he was one of the few people who had what is referred to as a combat patch on his right shoulder. We rose to our feet in unison, mesmerized by the presence of who we saw as a hardened combat veteran. This man had clearly answered the questions that I, now, I was wrestling with. We had no idea what was about to take place, but as an officer candidate headed to, to officer candidate school immediately following basic training, I paid special attention to how he stood, how he moved, and how he spoke to us. But rather than stand on the platform like the rest of the presenters, Captain Hawkins strode among us. It was quite an intimidating setting, and he, he sternly looked each of us in the eye as he walked past incredibly intimidating and singling out the most most timid he asked them to show their war face show him my war face i thought what does that even mean show him my war face each one of us began to put our heads down eyes averted in fear that we too would be singled out and humiliated by a poor showing we watched anxiously as, as recruit after recruit was called upon, failing miserably with each attempt. But after a few agonizing minutes and tiring of this exercise, Captain Hawkins' shoulders broadened, his back straightened as he leaned toward the latest shaky recruit, and his eyes narrowed, his countenance intensifying as he got closer and closer to the young man's face. Then without warning, his face contorted and he let out the most frightening roar any of us had ever heard. To a man, he now had our undivided attention. Our eyes were fixed on him. We listened intently as he described the essence of modern combat, the camaraderie and esprit de corps that awaited us in the army. As I exited the classroom, following his presentation, my mind was fixed on a singular task training my mind, body, and spirit to overcome all obstacles and achieve the mission. But that's not where the Lord left me that day. I had a similar epiphany about soldiering for Christ a few years later. And brothers and sisters, we're not just called to be dutiful soldiers, but good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You know, when we come to God through faith in Christ, we are immediately thrust into a battle previously unknown to us. Therefore, we must communicate three things to the people around us, especially those whom we disciple and our families. Number one, we are soldiers. Paul writes to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, right? To be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're in a spiritual war for the truth. Matthew 16, 13 through 18 makes this point very, very clear. And we're called to fight for the souls of others. Again, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. But regrettably, this is rarely discussed with new believers or seasoned believers in, in real terms. And this oversight can have devastating effects. <clears throat> because unlike service in the U.S. Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, the Coast Guard, or any other you know, public service profession where you put your life in jeopardy for others, 
The battle that we're called to is not against flesh and blood, and the consequences for those who become casualties are eternal. But fortunately, we're not responsible for the outcome of the battle. But brothers and sisters, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're simply called to fight. And that's what Nehemiah encourages the people then to do, and that's what he encourages us to do now. Fight. Fight. And our indifference is at our own risk. You know, before going to war in Iraq in September 2005, I spent 18 months at just initial training at Fort Benning. Went to basic training. I went to officer candidate school. I went to the infantry officer basic course. I went to airborne school, ranger school. And then I went to my unit for the first time. And I spent another six months training with the men that I would go to combat with. And while the training was intense, tiring and painful, we understood that the, pur- the purpose of it, and we submitted to it. But I implore you today that as Christians, we don't have the luxury of 24 months of training. Prior to our spiritual regeneration, the enemies of God are indifferent to us. Indifferent. The minute we come to Christ, though, we become a threat. And whether we acknowledge it or not, we're immediately thrust onto the front lines of the most dangerous battle we'll ever know. Christianity is not a spectator event. Christianity is a war over truth. We are soldiers in this war. Not the sort that are charged to storm a beach or parachute behind enemy lines. But those who love the Lord our God and who love our neighbors as ourselves. And like counterinsurgency in modern warfare, Christianity is a battle for hearts and minds. We are not just soldiers on a random battlefield fighting to achieve some ambiguous objective. There are people that the Lord asks us to fight for. And with that, our our third point this morning, who are we called to fight for? We're called to fight for the brethren, for our families, and our neighbors. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Well, who are your brothers, you might ask? Jesus in Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, that answers that question for us when His mother and his brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. But Jesus answered, and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The author of Hebrews puts it a little bit differently and makes it even more personal when he writes in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him... For whom all things, and through all things, and through whom all things, 
in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. We're to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus suffered what he suffered to bring us together as his bride. And the first group of people we're to to fight for and to die for, perhaps, literally or figuratively, are brothers and sisters in Christ. The people in this room. People across town, across state, across the country, across the globe. In thinking about this, I'm reminded of of Corey Tenboom, and I'm sure if you don't know much about her, you at least know who she was. She was a, a prisoner uh, in a Nazi concentration numerous Nazi concentration camps uh, during World War II, and she was imprisoned, her and her family, for uh, hiding hiding Jews from persecution. But in 1947, Corey Tenboom journeyed from Holland to you know now defeated Germany with a message of, that God forgives. As she shared the message of God's grace, the, the solemn faces in the audience stared back at her, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947, she said. People stood up in silence and in silence collected their things and left the room. But that's when she saw one particular man working his way forward against the others. One moment she saw an overcoat and a brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back to her with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. She could see her sister Betsy's frail form ahead of her in line, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. She and Betsy had been arrested, like I said, for concealing Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man, now making his way toward her, had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where she and her sister were sent. Now he was in front of her, hand thrust out. A fine, a fine message, Fraulein, he said to her, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She stood there fumbling her hand in her pocket rather than taking his hand. He did not remember her. Of course not. How could he? How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? She remembered him. She remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since her release that she had been face to face with one of her captors. And she said her blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard in there. But he still didn't remember her. But since that time, he went on. I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. 
but I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, his hand came out. This time with a simple question, will you forgive me? And she stood there thinking to herself, I who sin had every day to be forgiven, but yet she could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? She described the situation that was only seconds as they stood there, him with his hand held out. But to her, she said, it seemed hours as she wrestled with the most difficult thing she had ever been asked to do. She knew it was not only a commandment of God to forgive, but that it was a daily experience. Since the end of the war, she had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. As she stood there, she was reminded that those who were able to forgive their former enemies, those were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness, however, were made invalids, she said. It was as simple and as horrible as that. As she stood there with the coldness clutching her heart, she realized that forgiveness is not emotion. She knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. So she prayed silently, Jesus help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, she thrust her hand into the one outstretched before her. As she did, she said an incredible thing took place. The current began and her shoulders raced down her arms, sprawling into their joined hands. And then she said this healing warmth seemed to flood her whole being, bringing tears to her eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, they grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. It was in that moment that she said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Fear. Remember the Lord. In those moments, that's what Corey Ten Boom did. She was afraid. That man brutalized her and her sister. Her call to come and die was to forgive the man very well most directly responsible for the death of her sister. Yet not in her power. Jesus, she said, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You supply the feelings. That man was her brother in Christ. And God called her to fight for him. And she did. The second group of people that Nehemiah encourages the Israelites to fight for us for their families. Your brothers, he said, but then he goes on, your sons, your daughters, and your wives. As I said, the Lord used this passage to, to show me that my calling was to, to go and, and to serve our country. And in 2011, I came home from my third deployment in support of the global war on terror. Uh, of, of the three that I had had at that, up to that point, uh, Afghanistan was by far the worst. And I came home 
an angry, embittered man. Unfortunately, by God's grace, I did not physically take it out on my wife and my children. But emotionally, I certainly did, and I had been for years. And the Lord again began to use this, this passage to fight for my family. To fight for my family. And so, my lovely wife and I began marriage counseling. We began to really focus our hearts and our minds and our, 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 our energies on getting right with the Lord. On getting right with each other. And fighting for that. Fighting to protect our family. Fighting for what God had called us to be to one another and to our children. And it was, it was quite something to see what the Lord was doing, not just in, in our family, but in the, the Christians around us. Because we got to see this right here, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ fighting for us. And instead of seeing us as a, another military family that just can't hack it. And I'm not saying that, that there's a lot of people out there that do that. But there are some. And they do talk like that. And it's very easy to just avoid people with hard problems. But rather than do that, they rallied around us. They prayed for us. They prayed with us. They challenged us with very hard things. They said some incredibly hard things to us about the hardness of our hearts. And what, we, what it encouraged us to do and to understand was that we weren't in this fight alone. That our fight for our families... We had brothers and sisters in Christ who were right alongside us. In the, in the years since, uh, God has put our family through some pretty intense trials. And we've been able to see the fruit of fighting for one another. Katie fighting for me. Fighting for our children. And, and vice versa. And... Uh, It's not a physical fight. Again, just like Corey Tinbooms was not a, a physical fight with for this brother in the Lord. It was simply a call to lay down her life. Come and die. Put others first. Live for them. And so in the in the years since, again, the Lord continues to bring this, this passage back. And uh, I ask you this, who is your neighbor? Fight for our brothers, that's not always easy. But for the most part, the people that we're closest to, that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, there's not a whole lot of threat until something bad happens. For our families, it's up and down, right? But who are our neighbors? You know, in, in Nehemiah 4.14, Nehemiah uses the word homes, but that's not what it means. It's much more than that. The call to fight for our homes is far greater than the brick and mortar that makes up the physical dwellings where we live. It's a call to fight for the people in our community. Remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The unbelievers around us where we work, where we live. 
you know, our, our culture continues to erode very rapidly. And we see the church cloistering away, retreating from the fight. You know, in Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, uh, in, in Matthew, Jesus adds a statement to the end of that. And he tells them that the gates of hell will not prevail against this. We're not on the defensive. God calls us to be on the offensive. Right? We're attacking the gates of hell. We're not waiting for them to attack us. But yet that's how a lot of us live. It's how I've lived. Instead of cloistering away, we're called to engage. We recently showed our two older boys uh, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village. And it's a little bit older, but uh, the story behind it is rather compelling. It's this community of people who want to preserve the innocence of their children. And so they move off and occupy a basically a nature preserve, and they live very simply. No running water, no technology other than electricity. They hunt, they farm. But in order to keep their children from trying to get off of this preserve, they begin to, to, they, to formulate the dangers of the outside world. And then it will, it will corrupt you. And we see that happening in the church today. It's the outside world that's corrupt. We've got to pull ourselves in and stay pure. Thank God Jesus didn't see us like that. Amen? And I don't say that to, to be a downer because there's, there's a lot of, of, of strength in coming together, but not to stay there. Right? We, we, we come together like this today to train, to encourage, to build up, but then to go out and to do the work, to fight the fight. As Paul said, the good fight of faith. Right? Um, you know, by the end of, of that movie, The Village, they realize that the corruption's not outside. Right? I think everybody in this room understands that the corruption's in. You know, I've used the analogy with my, my kids that, you know, our heart is like a well. And sin is in it. The things of the world are just pulling it out. It's already there. And so God calls us into that fight to, to take his word, to take his love, to take his grace into the world, into the neighborhoods where we live, the places that we work, the restaurants we eat at, the stores we shop in. Because those people are in this battle too. They just don't know it. They just don't know it. In conclusions or excuse me, in conclusion, like you, I see the enemy before us, and our adversary is fierce. But when we remember the Lord, we have nothing to fear. The Apostle John, in uh, his first epistle, in chapter 4, verse 18, writes this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Remember the Lord. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. He doesn't love us because of his son. He sent his son because he loves us. And when we fear, when we remember that, we remember that the Lord is good. We remember that he's delivered us, that he's delivered others around us. We're encouraged to stand. I was sharing this story with Seth uh, recently about a couple of my soldiers who died, uh, you know, seven years ago next, next Saturday. Throughout our, our deployment, we, beginning in April of, of 2011, we're in the rural farmlands of southern Afghanistan. And an area very much like here. Uh, they grew corn, they grew wheat, they grew grapes, and they grew poppy, which the world uses for black tar heroin. But they were simple people who cared about their families. They were being taken advantage of by the Taliban just like everybody else around the world. But it was an incredibly dangerous place. And as we walked around the, these, these farm fields, by, the, by this point in the deployment, we, we had two, two soldiers had been killed and, and another you know, 28 had been wounded by August 11th of 2011. Soldiers were losing feet, hands, their lives. Well, on this morning, uh, a, a resupply was going from our main outpost to a, a smaller one out on the, the, the edges of our area of operations. And it was right on the boundary with another, another unit. And the enemy tends to exploit those. And they exploited this one. And we were kind of overextended and the terrain was really tight. And as they're driving their armored vehicle down this narrow dirt road, a massive explosion erupts, waking the entire organization that was asleep. All five soldiers that were occupying the vehicle were, were thrown from it. Some we knew were killed instantly. Others we knew were wounded because we could hear them, them crying out. And I got to personally witness what it is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. As specialist Jeffrey Lola, who was only 20 years old at the time, and PFC Robert Farley, who was just 18, still a teenager, without hesitation, rushed into those fields that had killed or wounded over 30 other men. Immediately. To rescue their wounded brothers. One of my most prized possessions that remains put away it's for my personal, uh, not benefit, but just to remember, is a pair of combat boots that, uh, that has the blood of our first killed soldier on them. A young man who didn't have to deploy, who had just come home from a 12-month deployment to Afghanistan and still had three months that he could have stayed home, and we offered it to him. 
and he and his wife made the decision to go to war with us anyway. We were three weeks into our deployment when he was killed. Three weeks. Didn't have to be there. But his loyalty was to the men around him. His family's loyalty was to the men around him. And so I ask you, will you come and die? Will you be a living sacrifice? Will you humble yourself before the Lord and be identified with those who are hurting? In some cases within the church, who are struggling with such deplorable sins that you'll go to them and not just point out their sin but struggle alongside them will you get blood on your boots when you see someone wounded thrust out on the battlefield will you launch headlong to recover them because we have an example of that. And so this is what I want to leave you with this morning. Not a downer, but something to be excited about. Because we have an example. I'll read the entire passage for you, but the end is what we have on the, on the board behind me. In Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 8, it says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, uni unified in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And this is where we, we end. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, I bid you come and die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you love us in spite of our sin. And so, God, I just come before you and I ask, Lord, that you would help us in the power of your Spirit that we too would come and die. That we would live for others and not ourselves. That we would fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would fight for our families. And that we would fight for the lost in our community. Help us to engage in the battle that you have in front of us, Lord. As good soldiers. Empower us by your spirit. For it's, as you write in Nehemiah, or not Nehemiah, Zechariah 4.6. It's not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.